You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to touch base, call into the show, 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. Or you can email us at Let's Talk Torah, no apostrophes, Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com. You know, it's, uh, I almost feel like it's uh, the old gang is here. I have all my old friends are here. Kelsey's here. Tony's here. Angel's here. Alyssa's here. So it's always fun to have everybody come back, and hopefully they'll stick around. They'll be nice to me. They'll stick around. We'll see. We're going to have, um, in our second segment, a fascinating interview with a, a, a woman by the name of Chaz. Chaz Freed. You don't know her story, but you want to know her story. This is someone who's uh, traveled, been all over, fire department, FBI, Israel. Um, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk. And, and Torah, by the way, is part of her life, which makes it even more fascinating for a person who lives in Galveston, Texas, where, to my knowledge, she may be the only Jew. But we'll find out. Um, other topics we got to get into today. We got to talk about the kindness of Abraham, the destruction of Sodom. That nice desert area near the Dead Sea was once a beautiful, lush area, if you can imagine such a thing. We're going to talk about saving Lot, um, Lot's lack of gratitude, if we have time to get there. Maybe we'll talk some salt and pillars of salt. We'll see. And along with uh, our word of the week and a great story at the end, of course, like always, if I have time to get there. Okay. So let's talk this week's Torah portion. So Abraham has just had his circumcision. He is 99 years old. Everyone says, ouch. No, he's uh, obviously, he's 99. God gave him the command. He has had his circumcision, and obviously he's weak from the surgery. And God does not want anyone bothering Abraham. Abraham likes to have guests. He's famous. He's world famous for anybody traveling in the area. They come by, and he feeds them, and he gives them to drink, and and. We talk about the kindness of Abraham. He, he sets up his tent in a central area where anybody coming by will be spotted, and it's a desert. So Abraham will invite them in, have something to drink, have something to eat, and it looks like an inn, a hotel. So you, you know, if, you're, if you're showing up, you say, yeah, so what's the menu? Um, what do these things cost? So Abraham says, you know, it really depends. So the customer will say, depends on what? So it depends. If you're willing to make a blessing and thank God for the food I'm about to give you, it's on the house. On the house, all free. But if you're not willing to thank God for the food that I'm going to serve you, then it's going to cost. And it's going to be real expensive. So here's the two menus. You pick the prices. One menu has the blessings. One menu has the prices. 
And the guest looks at the prices and says, come on, like this is crazy. Whatever numbers we'll make up, who cares? And uh, Abraham says, we are in the middle of a desert and water is hard to come by. But again, it's your call. So what did Abraham want? So he's forcing people to make blessings like, uh, of course, so great. So the only way you're going to give me water, I make a blessing. What do I care? So there's an interesting, it's, it's actually psychological. When we say things, when we do action, it does affect us internally. So if I'm going to bless God for something, even if I'm that person that doesn't believe in God, but the fact of the matter is that that action, that blessing will affect me, whether I like it or not. Then it will be my choice to decide how much I'm actually affected. But that's what Abraham wanted. He's trying to show people that there's a God, teach people there's a God. That's what he represented. That's what he stood for. And he did it through kindness. He was known for his kindness. He was well known. And that's what he did. But here he is, three days after circumcision, in pain, sitting by his opening. And God has come to visit. Now, I don't know exactly what that means because it's not like God is a person and he's not going to pull over a lawn chair and say, so Abraham, how you feeling? That's not happening. But God's presence is there and Abraham understands that. Are they having a conversation? The Torah doesn't say. I actually believe there was no conversation. It's almost like sometimes when you visit somebody who's not well or who's depressed or who's had surgery, sometimes you don't have to talk. Just being in the room is comforting. Being in the area, showing you care, so you're quiet, who cares? It's like an, a good old couple. Children think that they have to always be talking, or it's, uh, I think my daughter says the word awkward. That's like some new teenage word, when you're sitting there not talking. And I say, not true. I'm very happy. I can sit on the couch with my wife. I don't have to talk. She doesn't have to talk. We could just sit and enjoy each other's company. And that's really what's happening when God is hanging out with Abraham. Abraham understands God is there. His presence is felt. That's all he needs. But Abraham really wants guests. And God really doesn't want guests. So God brings out this amazingly hot sun. That's just the language the commentaries use. He made it a really hot day. So hot that no one's coming out. But Abraham really wants guests. So God gives in. And he sends the three angels. The three angels, these are, uh, they each have jobs. The rule with the angels are every angel can only have one job. So one's going to heal Abraham. One's going to inform Sarah that she's going to have a boy. And one is on his way to destroy Sodom. So these three angels are walking. Abraham sees them. He runs out and he says, please, even though God, right, you have God as, as your guest, and you're running out to take care of three. It, it sounds like in the verses, Abraham did not know at first that these were angels. They looked like regular travelers, uh, Arabs, whatever they looked like, people who lived in the desert, nomads, who, who knows what. So Abraham's leaving God to go serve and take care of some regular people. Does that make sense? And the answer is yeah, because God doesn't need you to be keeping him company. That's not what he needs. God wants you to do, do good stuff. If your good stuff is being kind, is inviting guests, is being, hospi is being hospitable, that's what God wants. So Abraham goes, he invites them, and they say, fine, we'll come. Now, interesting, Abraham only offers them a little bread and a little water. That's the offer 
that Abraham makes. If you guys come to my tent, I have some water for you, some bread for you, make yourself comfortable. And he serves them, uh, I don't know, an eight-course meal. There's milk and butter and there's supposed to be bread and there's, and there's tongue with mustard. That's because the commentary say it. I didn't make it up on my own. And he gives them a whole feast. So as a side, we always learn you have to be careful when we talk. A lot of times people talk and they offer the world, yeah, I'll do this for you and I'll do that for you and I'll take care of this. and I'll, A whole long list of things that we all do. It happens all the time. I want to help you and I say how much I'm going to help you. And then all of a sudden when push comes to shove, uh, this came up, I got busy, I got a phone call, someone needed something from me. And all of a sudden I don't have time um, to take care of all the things I, I said I was going to do. So Abraham teaches us, better offer a little. If you do a lot, fantastic. If you can't do a lot, at least you didn't set the guy up like you were going to do who knows what and do zero. Right? If you've ever had friends who offered to help you when you had to move, and weeks in advance you talked to them and you made the dates and you set it up, you can pick any example. It doesn't have to be helping move apartments. And then all of a sudden, the day of, all the guys who promised you hours of their time, this one has to come late, and this one has to leave early, and this one didn't realize he had a, a doctor appointment, and this kid has to go to soccer practice. All of a sudden, a lot of excuses. So I get nothing from all the promises. So don't make me promises. So therefore, we learn again. We learn from Abraham the concept, say little. You want to do a lot? Fantastic. You can't do a lot? At least you did what you said you were going to do. He invites them in. They tell Abraham that, um, that Sarah is going to have a child. In the next year, she's going to have a boy. Going to have a child. So Sarah is listening behind the tent. And Sarah laughs to herself. She laughs like, who are we fooling? My husband's 99. I'm 89. Not happening. I'm not having kids. Not happening. So God says to Abraham, why is your wife, Sarah, laughing? Now, let's back up a little bit. So Sarah's laughing, and I probably like all good wives. She says to herself, I'm, I'm 89. My husband's 99. But what she really says is that how are we going to have kids? My husband is too old. That's the language in the verse. That Sarah says my husband's too old in her mind. When God repeats the story over to Abraham, God says Sarah laughed. And she said, she's too old. So God is not giving over the exact message. So we're, let's put that on pause. Let's just move along a drop and we'll come back to it. Abraham goes to Sarah and says, you're laughing? So first she says she's not laughing. Then she realizes that Abraham knows she's laughing. So she tries to deny it. The bottom line is Abraham is trying to teach Sarah, first of all, you don't know who these people are. You thought they're regular people. You didn't know they're angels. I know they're angels. So this is really coming from God. That's number one. But even if you didn't know they're angels, if a person gives you a blessing, so say, amen. Yeah, it should happen. It will happen. It won't happen. But don't uh, just uh, brush off uh, any old blessing that comes your way. Now let's backtrack. So Sarah said in her mind that Abraham is old. God tells over the story to Abraham that Sarah said she's old. Why the flip? Why? What's God afraid to tell Abraham the truth? They've been married for who knows how many years already. So if they've been married that long, so they can handle each other. 
they're 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 ribbing and they're and they're cheppering as we would say or making fun. They can handle it. That's what you would think. So we're we're learning over here a fascinating lesson. When you see people have been married a long time and they have a good relationship, don't think you could, you know, stick pins into that relationship. Not healthy. In other words, it's not gonna be good for the relationship. If Abraham thinks that his wife, Sarah, is calling him old, it's not healthy for the relationship. Therefore, God lies. He does not tell Abraham the exact story. And by not telling Abraham the exact story, so again, nothing really changes because she did laugh. And why make Avram a little not so happy about what his wife thought about him? So we do learn from here when it comes to um, dealing with people and relationships, husband and wife, parents and children, sometimes you don't have to be perfectly honest. Even though the Torah wants us to be honest and we like honest people, but you need to know that not all honesty, not all truth is really being truthful. The, for God to say to Abraham what Sarah really said is not helpful. That is not called truth. That's not the time when you're supposed to be perfectly honest and say word for word. It doesn't change anything, and it, w it certainly won't hurt anybody, in this case, to lie. So we call it, you can lie for showing bias. You can lie to keep the peace. You see people fighting. You see people arguing. You want to get each one in a corner and help them out. Lie a little bit. Oh, the person didn't mean it. For sure he didn't mean it. He told me he feels so bad. He wasn't concentrating. He had a bad day at work. And you go to the other one and you say, yeah, yeah, she, yeah. The kid gave her a hard time today. She wasn't concentrating. She wasn't. She didn't mean what she said. Who cares if she really meant it or he really meant it? What's the difference? You want to make peace? You want to get everybody happy? So lie a little bit. It's not going to hurt anybody. Trust me. It's not going to hurt anybody. Okay, so the angels now pick up and move along. Now, one of the angels disappears. The angel um, that came to tell Sarah, it's debatable, but the angel that came to tell Sarah that, uh, that she's having a boy, he's gone. And now we have two angels going down. Even though I told you an angel only has one job. but So the one destroying Sodom has always been here. The one that healed Abraham will also save Lot before they destroy the city. So, um, so even though it's technically two jobs, one healing Abraham, one saving Lot, but it's in the same ballpark. That idea of saving, healing. So therefore, this... One job, two jobs, it's all the same, so therefore he continues on the journey. So they show up, and Sodom is, a, is just a wicked, rotten, horrible city. They are, and remember, no politics, so you can think whatever you want, but they are anti-charity. They actually have anti-charity laws. They don't want people coming collecting. They don't want people coming asking for help. You don't invite people to a party if the person uh, wasn't invited, even though who cares? There's a lot of food. You invite a friend. Like, what's the big deal? Um, you can't have people sleep in your house overnight. Uh, poor people come to town. Make sure they don't bring any, you know, they don't get served any food. We want them out of our town. We don't want them taking our money and leaving our town and not spending it in our town. They had a lot of anti-charity laws, a very wicked city which is why they had to be destroyed. So Lot is there. So Lot sees the angels. And it would seem that Lot recognized they were angels. Because if you look at the verse, by Abraham, he thinks they're people, because that's what the language of the verse is. 
Lot sees that they're angels. So Lot um, pleads and begs that they should come and they, they should be guests by him and the, the angels don't say yes right away. Lot himself needs more merit to be saved. So they want to give him the merit that at least he begged and pleaded to do kindness and kindness he learned when he was by Abraham. So it's funny that this Lot lives in a city of anti-charity laws, but he still has the concept of charity. He brings him to the house. The angels tell him what's going to happen. They give him the option to save his family. He has two daughters at home. He has uh, two future son-in-laws and two daughters married, and he goes to tell the kids, and they laugh at him. Oh, old Lot, you don't know what you think. The city's getting destroyed. You're making up stories. So... um, so they're not willing to come. He only has though his two daughters and his wife. So everybody likes the story of the pillar of salt. So we'll, we'll do that in my last few seconds. So Lot's wife goes to a neighbor. And she says, I can't believe my husband invited guests. I hate when we have guests. This way the word would get out that uh, they invited guests. And she borrows the salt. And sure enough, the city surrounds the house. And they want those two angels. And Lot wants to protect them. And in the end, the angels uh, make them all blind, so they all disappear. And the angels basically have to schlep Lot, his wife, and two daughters out. And he says, but you don't deserve to see a full-fledged destruction. You don't deserve to see Saddam turned over. So run, really run to the mountains. We don't have time to get more into what happened. Run to the mountains, and, um, and you'll be safe. But don't turn around. But Lot's wife turns around, probably to see maybe her daughters were coming. And here comes my music, and that's where she turns into the famous Pillar of Salt. And that's what we're going to get through to the Torah portion of it today. When we come back, we're going to talk to Chaz Freed, a fascinating story. So hold through the break. You don't want to miss it. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our nine and dine special, nine holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Advertising your business these days can be challenging. Traditional radio and TV ads are expensive and, frankly, a bit of a crapshoot. Not to mention, the audience for over-the-air material is shrinking as more and more of us demand to see and hear what we want, when we want. Advertising on new radio media is a solution. With our live streaming programs that are also available on demand, your message is always ready when your customers are ready to watch and listen, all for a fraction of what you'd likely have been paying for other ads. NewRadioMedia.com. Call Buzz Van Houten at 248-939-9999 for more information. Hey, you guys, it's Raphael of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Guess what? The only thing we can get down here in the sewer is Geektainment Weekly on new radio media. Turtle power! Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years, and through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service, and we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. Please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced 
at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Wald Lake. And we're back. And as promised, Alyssa says we're on. I'm actually not sure how to introduce my next guest, but let's say like this. Torah is part of her life, born in Manhattan, out to San Diego, now lives in Galveston, Texas. Um, as she likes to say, her story reads like a B-movie. Um, we are joined by Chaz Freed. Chaz, how are you today? Hi, uh, beautifully speaking. I'm Chaz, I don't know what's happening. I'm not hearing it. What? Okay, hold on. Let me make that better. Oh, that's better. Now hold we hear on it. now. Now is much, much better. Okay, we're good. Now it's everybody's yeah. okay. My team says we're good. So, Chaz, okay. we got so much to talk about. I hope you had a good week since we spoke last. Um, just yeah. just talk about yourself for a minute, and then we'll uh, get into some of your earlier days in Israel and the boys' school, and then we'll get to the exciting part. So just uh, give us a heads up of who you are. Okay, my name's Christina Freed. Uh, I was born in New York, moved young to uh, California, grew up in San Diego, Ocean Beach, California. Started working as a firefighter, uh, paramedic, until I got married. And... Uh, when I was married, I stopped working, and uh, I asked for a get 2007, and um, went to work in Texas. I live in Palestine, Texas now. I lived in a town called Bonham, and uh, the two experiences for the two employers that I had in Texas are where the B-movie part of it comes in, but that's a quick sketch. Perfect. So I said it wrong. It's Palestine, not Galveston. Yeah, Palestine. But you can, yeah, I can see how the phonetic would sound similar. Yeah, that's it, it's just the accent. No big deal. So okay. just to give Can you hear me well? What? Can you hear me well? I can hear you fine. Tony, we're good? Yeah, okay, everybody great. says we're good. Excellent. Very good. I know. I don't know why the cell phones doesn't make the station uh, so happy, but we're good. So I wanted to start out... Um, I know at some point in your life, um, you went to Israel. When did you go to Israel? I went to seminary in, right after the war, 91, and I uh, went to Makon Alta. And it was an interesting situation because I had already went through Tanya a few times, and I didn't speak Ivrit, I, uh, Russian Kodesh, and English. So um, I was learning uh, Yiddish, but I wasn't speaking it yet. And I went um, to a lot of the Israeli classes, but I found that it was a lot of repetition. So in my travels in the school, I discovered a teacher that was in a building separate from the main campus on a second floor, like an apartment. And uh, I walked in on him and I asked him, uh, his name was Rabbi Kahati, Carmen Kahati. And I asked him, well, what do you teach? And he says, what do you want to learn? So I told him, Oneg. So he turned all red, and he says, okay, we're going to start with brachas. So I ended up learning one-on-one um, -on -one with this chavrusa, this love, teaching me um, with all of Mepharshim and his chedushin brachas, and we went from there. Hey, so I said, Chaz, and, uh, I'm going to slow you down a little bit, because you said more words in 30 seconds than anybody sitting in the room ever heard of before. So let's <laughs> take it slow, but, but I want to I wanna get it really slow. 
So, so you went to Israel to study. Were, yeah. And as you wanted to learn Torah. So you told me you showed yeah. up at seminary. And this is something yeah. that I think people should hear about. Um, there's schools for boys. There are Talmudic schools for boys where boys, young men, teenagers, 20s, 30s, will sit, I guess, in a big room and yell and scream at each other for hours and hours studying the sea of Talmud, as we like to say. Um, but girls' seminaries don't really look like that. So you no, walked into no, a girls' no. seminary. What did you see? I saw girls lounging. You know, I expected the mirror in my mind's eye. You know, I expected the mirror with women. And I got there, and it was like this couch, and everybody was eating, like, cream with coffee and sugar in it and coffee and coffee clutching and having a good time. And I was totally blown away. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I got myself into? This is not going to be, you know, deep learning. So... I went to the early classes, and they actually did teach uh, learning at a, at a relatively high level. They were teaching Tanya. Um, they were going to Ian in, in Tanya. But uh, I really wanted to learn Shas. So right, Shas is the Talmud, for those who never heard of it before. So you wanted to delve yeah. into the Talmud. Did you ever wonder, I was thinking about it today, we didn't talk about it. Did you ever, I know the answers. Did you ever wonder why boys focus exclusively in what you'll call their seminaries, their post-high schools or college on Talmud, and the girls will study numerous subjects, and it could be at a high level of education, of understanding, of deep thinking, but not Talmud. Did you ever wonder why? Did it ever bother you? Not, yes and no. I mean, when when you quote the Gemara and it talks on how you're teaching your daughter Stuart by teaching her Shas, I think what the shot is, what the basic underlying meaning of that is, is that she's not going to be able to use that knowledge in the real world. So my time to the Rabbam when I first started asking about this was, well, if you have sons, so you'd be a better mother to sons if you could mechanic them in something before they got out into the world, give them a fundament. So your Shemayim is what you get from everything else. Shas teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to interpret. It teaches you the logic. No other nation has the Shas besides us. No other nation interprets the Torah correctly and completely because they don't have access to the Shas. So for me, uh, Torah is the, how would you say it in English? I'm trying to think now. Don't worry, I'll retranslate it for you. Everything is subsumed. All knowledge is subsumed in the Torah. Right? So since all knowledge is subsumed in the Torah, there has to be a way to derive understanding from, from Sukkim and Torah. So the Talmud gives us the tools to understand, the Messiah to understand what the Torah is coming to teach us. So any learning without the Shas is going to be limited by definition. Right. That, that is what I went to the Rebbeim with, and then, you know, they basically, I had Rebbeim okay it in terms of, you know, talk to me and learn or learn with me on the phone. Some of them won't sit across the table from you where they learn. Like, I've had Shiloh's, I can call people on the phone, and that's how I've been learning. It hasn't been the, the personable across the table. I mean, I was married, I did go across the table, but short of that, I haven't had too many across the table. Right. Okay, it's been, you know, I'll learn it, and then I'll call up if I have any questions type of a thing or, you know, Right. We'll talk, if we get there, man, right? If we get there, we'll talk about you and your husband. I know you—you were study partners. 
Um, so what yeah. you said is really fascinating. In other words, you feel that if a mother was well-versed in Talmud, she would have a, a an easier time training, teaching her children, her boys, as they grow up. And there are women who are like that, by the way. However, yeah, for the I, most part... The <laughs> right. No, you, no, you're not the only one. My daughter's had a teacher in seminary who's exactly the same, and I told you this, and she studied with her boys. But in most family structures, not all, because it's not fair to say all, but in many family structures, it's it, the setup is that the the understanding of the Torah is going to come from the father, from the teachers. Um, and as if I come home sick from school, um, I want my mother to ask how I'm doing and how I'm feeling and give me chicken soup. And even though this may sound a little bit uh, maybe yeah. not uh, feminist, you know, you know, I want you, all of that. you could. <laughs> But and it's an yeah. unusual person who could. And you are that unusual person who could blend them both. But most, I, I'm probably going to get yelled at by people. But my wife is not one of them because she does actually believe strongly this way, that that it's. Oh, but I bet it, she knows more lovey than you. I bet she knows more lovey than you. That's fine, and she's and my boys yes. don't, so she's not asking them about that. So that's all true, right? You are. <laughs> so yes. um, no, in, in other words. The generally speaking, we hate generalities, but generally speaking, the mother's job is is raising the child, make, having a healthy house, a, a, a healthy family yeah. that everybody's socially equipped. The Yerush, you know, yeah. the my wife says all the time, Yerushimayim. By the way, for those who didn't know that word, that's fear of God. So the mothers have an opportunity because they take care of children when they're young. That's why it says Moses spoke to the women first, then the men. Because the women are raising the children to have that love of Torah study and a love of Torah, but that's happening when they're two, three, four, five, six. My wife makes fun of me all the time. Till the kids are a couple years old, I can't talk to them. It's a different language. But mm-hmm. but when they get older, so now I study with them. My evenings are filled with homework with children and Talmud with my children, all these things taking care of the children, that if she was busy teaching them all the Talmud and studying for all their tests, she wouldn't do all the other mother stuff that's, that's, that she can do and I for oh, sure yeah. can't yeah, do. I, feel what you're saying. I understand that. I'm not saying she has to prepare them. I'm just saying that in your everyday life, you can find all, I mean, every type of situation where you can utilize shots. I mean, any, you give me an example from anything that happens during your day, and you can apply some section of shots to it. Right, but to be on that level where where anything that happens, and I have study partners, I do it all the time, they, they say, what does the Torah say about this situation? But that's coming from years of study. If I'm going to spend my day studying, I'm not spending my day taking care of my children. Unless you're a special person. And that's something that... I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think it can be blended. I think women are good at multitasking. Of course they're good at multitasking. That's right. I I cannot chew gum and have a conversation at the same time. Absolutely not. And tying my shoes, I'm lost. But that's why I slip on shoes. You have to do 15 things. You have to do 15 things at once, and she does. That's right. That's how you got from, yeah. So I don't think it's a spirit. I don't think think one is mutually exclusive of the other. I just think that it's, it's a balance thing. Except you, know, you don't. Except you don't know too many people um, like yourself that actually have that. Uh, where they have the opportunity, I mean, have so the ability. Yeah, you know, Chaz, Chaz, do me one second. My music is playing. 
If you hold through the break, we're going to come back, even though this is a fascinating conversation. But I got to get into the B-movie stuff. So hold through the break. We're going to be right back with Chaz. The latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years. And through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service. And we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. Please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Wald Lake. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our nine and dine special, nine holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Pod Questers, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic sleeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on newradiomedia.com Fridays, Pod Questers. See you there. And we're back. And as much as I would like to continue that conversation with Chaz, but I, I, we got to move on to other stuff. So many things in her life. One day she'll write a book, then I can, I can interview you for your book. But Chaz, are you still right. there? Yes, I'm still here. You are going to write a book about all this, right? Oh, yeah, they've already started. I don't have a copyright on my life story. You don't have so to copyright your life Yeah, I don't think you have to copyright your life story. Who else is going to claim to have your story? But... Uh, you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. I, I, I ran a marathon. For example, I ran marathons when I was a firefighter with, um, with uh, turnout gear on. And I, one of my friends says, you know, you should go, go to Guinness and, and put yourself in Guinness. Because I finished both of these marathons in four hours. 34 hours, 40 minutes, with about 60 pounds of gear on. So um, I thought, you know, I made this up in in the uh, early 90s, and I've had like seven people copy me already. So I listed the Guinness Book of World Records. All their times are slower than mine. So, uh, but it's just, just to say, I was the first one to do this, and then six or seven people copy you and put themselves on Guinness. So you can never be too careful. Okay, I accept. With, uh, copycatting. For those who, again, I, I'm not going through all the parts of Chaz's life, but if you ever had to walk down a dark alley, Chaz should be on your right side. Chaz will take care of you. As a, as a former wrestler, 
police officer, corrections officer, and that's what we're going to talk about. So you moved down to Texas, and you went to work, I don't remember which one was first, the corrections department or the VA? I was, I was, not, I was a firefighter paramedic most of my life, so after my, my divorce, I wanted to get back to work because I had a 501c3 teaching um, people that kind of fell through the cracks motivating them to learn Torah. I had that for about a year and a half, and uh, I had a basement shul kind of a situation where Ralph let me use the space, and uh, we made like three ceilings, and uh, then I just realized, you know, without a grant writer, I'm dying over here, and I really have to do something, so... Yeah, I was going to tell you, Chaz, one of the things we discover in your your life is you're very good at doing things for free. (laughs) <laughs> so, but okay. Yeah. Now that I interrupted you, so okay. So you you took care of a boys' school. You had a you had a synagogue in your basement, and of course, uh, no one's paying the bills right now. So what happens next? So I, I I'm while well, this is happening, I'm applying for work, but hoping that the five hundred one c three will fly, and I'll get a grant writer. Well, I didn't get a grant writer, so I had on paper I still have a five hundred one c three, but I'm not working in it. So what ended up happening was I had to. Um, go back to work. So I took the first offer, which was in Texas, a little town called Bonham, Texas. So um, I worked there about three days when I realized that there was something up with my supervisor. Now, what's that? This uh, was in the. This was the VA or the corrections department. This, this was the VA. This was the VA. VA. Okay, good. So you work so in the VA, and you figured out something is not kosher. Yes. Okay. Yes. What? What? So, go ahead. Well, he was harassing me for one, but the the thing that, that I had a bigger, I had a sense it was a bigger picture just based on the way he carried himself. There's a certain way that people that are in entrenched corruption will act and react, and he was showing signs of that. So what I did was I started documenting it, and I come to find out that he was embezzling money from the government for years. So I I thought that. In terms of his uh, harassment of me, that if I confronted him and let him know I'm documenting, when he'd stop. Because a rational person, when they know they're caught, they stop doing certain actions. Well, that just made it worse. He just went and got other people to harass me by proxy. You know, it's, I'm going to interrupt you again. It's interesting. In other words, yeah. this story is how I'm, old? How, how long ago did this take place? Uh, four years. Well, actually, 2013. That's when the Congress was investigating the VA, and I gave information to Congress. So 2013. Okay, so four or five years ago. In other words, within the last year, if you would have threatened somebody that they're harassing you, so now now public opinion would automatically um, go in your favor, and he might be retiring pretty quick. But that four or five years ago— no. Really? Actually, no. No. I'm not part—I'm a Republican. I'm conservative, so that wouldn't work for me. <laughs> number number two, uh, number two. The reason it wouldn't work is because in the government there's a system that you have to follow, and and uh, there's this. For instance, based on what he did, I could file an administrative lawsuit on him, and I did file an administrative lawsuit, which I won pro se, in short 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 order, and I was awarded an award for my back pay that I lost and reinstatement rights and everything. Because what had happened was I had turned him into Congress. The day that I turned him into Congress, the aide told me, you're the third person today to mention this name. 
and I was blown away. I said, the man ended up working until 2016. December of 2016, he retired. So it, nothing happened to him. The congressional investigation, nothing happened to him. So what that means is he was a big enough player with enough pull, enough, he knew enough bodies were buried to where he was virtually untouchable in a land without correct rule of law. So he got away with what he got away with. And uh, it, it's a very, very more, much more complicated than what I'm telling you, but you have to obviously understand that this person had other corrupt actions that he was in on and knew about other corruption in order to survive as he did. Because there's no way Derechateva, he should have been able to not be in prison now. And you don't just embezzle millions of dollars with the government over 30 years, have four VAOIGs, and nothing happened to you. Well, that's actually... And have it's yeah. amazing. So yeah. Now is that uh, now that's the first now that was you were working with the FBI on that one or this was all on your own? No, that was the second one. That's that, the that second was on story. My own. Okay, it's the first story you you they they sent you to Congress on your own. Then you went from the VA to the Corrections Department. So what happened over no, there? I went to, okay, okay, I went to Congress on my own and um, did what I did, and in the interim they tried the day after I turned it in, they tried to run me off the road. They should have tried to run you off of, the road before you handed it in, not yeah, after. But yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, before I left. And then, then I, um, after I got my award, I went to CDC to work. I went to the Texas Department of Corrections to work. And I was there 90 days. And it was relatively normal for 90 days. 91st day, you take a survey. After the survey was completed, then I saw Dante's Inferno level one. So, you know, there's eight with the idea of Gehenim, so I saw the first one. <laughs> The day after I did my survey, figures, and uh, shortly after that, an inmate came to me asking for help with a religious object because they're allowed to have religious religious objects on their person. And um, this person didn't understand how the system worked, didn't understand it was a transfer facility, but gave me enough evidence in his verbal testimony to me that he was being harassed and he really needed to have his religious objects as per law. So I. Um, told him what to do. He filled out a form, and uh, the next week he needs power to help him. I don't have any ability, according to policy, to help him. I'm listening to what he has to say, but at this point I realize that based on the different things he's telling me and the evidence he shows me that he's got in his locker about the murder that he knows about, I told him this is a public corruption case. I'd have to go to the FBI to really work this because we both know I can't take this through the chain of command because it's corrupted. So uh, would you agree to speak to the FBI if they came to you? And so, yes. so I'm just getting the picture that wherever you end up, you smell out the corruption. You be, I, I guess we'll call it, I don't know if it's a whistleblower. You, you want to help because that is who you are. As you told me before, you want to do what's right. So you approach the FBI and I'm only rushing up our story because my, my time is uh, ticking away quite uh, yeah, quickly. Yeah. So, so you yeah, went to the FBI I, 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 and what I, I, happened? That. Were you successful going to so, the FBI? Yeah, I, I met with um, – what I did first is I took off work the next day, and I um, said I had to get a mammogram. So I got a mammogram, and that was my cover story. And then right after I went to the hospital, I went straight to the FBI office in that same town. And um, I spoke to one of the officials there, and he treated me kind of like, so, you know, you saw a UFO land, what color was the UFO, kind of demeanor. 
But the next week they called me up and they said, would you, would you like to come in and sign paperwork? And then I said, why? They said, because we don't have any confidential informants in the state system. We only have them in the federal system. So I said, okay. And I turned in two other uh, incidents that were public corruption incidents to them as well. And uh, as far as I know, to date, nothing has happened with the information that I gave them, but they got promoted and don't work in criminal law anymore. <laughs> so well, so you're, like, you're helping somebody you know, out there. You're just not helping the people you want to help. Basically, I'm doing a responsibility, and Hashem is deciding what he wants to happen because that's the only way you can look at such breaches of rule of law and not go insane. It's just, I'm doing what the Torah would dictate I do the right thing no matter what the situation is and um, what people choose to do with the information is not my problem you know I you can only do so much like you can't a civilian can't prosecute these things I can know who the perpetrators of all these crimes are and can't do anything about it as a civilian you know I'm going to um, criminal justice courses in college now I'm not a police officer I've taken a lot of their courses and training from police, but I'm not actually a police officer yet. And even if I was, I couldn't, I, I have to be a private eye or a detective or something like that to, to follow up. So, you know, if there were any people that were not afraid to do the right thing, I'd like to get some contact with them because it's still a cold case. It's still open. It's opened recently. It was on 48 hours. and uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, so, Chaz, and you, Chaz, you know, I would talk to you forever about these things. I have about yeah. a minute. Would you like to leave us with something? You, whatever you want, you have about one minute, and then we have to say goodbye for today. But you're going to come back because I got too much stuff to talk about. Okay, Mr. Trump. I'd like to say um, that, that everything we do, whether or not it is something that comes to fruition or not, doesn't matter. The, what matters is that we do the right thing. Everything else is tuffled to death. Now I have to translate to understand. But uh, a tuffle means secondary. And that's really, Chaz, through your life, opening a school, going to Israel, um, trying to stop corruption. You want to do what's right. So your goal, your job is, I'm going to do what's right. And I guess we'll let the chips fall where they will. Chaz, I appreciate yeah. you coming. Um, we're going to talk. I'm going to bring you back again. And, uh, but till we meet again, um, have a great Shabbos, and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much for coming on. Shabbos, thank you. All right, be well, Chaz. Like I told you, a very fascinating person. Beats me where these people come from. I don't know. They come to me. And because I get to sit here, I meet all kinds of fascinating, interesting, and some inspirational people. Uh, the more we, we would talk about Chaz, just her drive to study and her drive for Torah and what, what she knows is important and taking care of children and boys. We didn't even get into it. She really, in that way, is, a, is an inspiration. She shouldn't be an inspiration. She writes a book. Don't worry. We'll have her down here right away. We'll interview. And here comes my music again. And our show is flying. So when we come back, we're going to be joined by Jonas and Goldson. We're going to have our word and letter of the week. So hang on through the break. We'll be right back. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. 
Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our nine and dine special, nine holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. At Murray's Park City, we're known for offering customer service you won't get in any chain store or online. But don't take it from me, just listen to what our customers have to say. The employees at Murray's are knowledgeable, courteous. They make you feel like you're at home. Pick up a can of Seafoam Fuel System Treatment for only $6.99 or a 5-quart container of Mobile One Motor Oil for just $28.95. Murray's Park City and Pontiac Trail at Maple Road in Wald Lake. We've got the parts you need when you need them. The latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Do you want to see things like this? Did you say you died? <laughs> well. I mean, technically. Or maybe even something like this. We'll do nothing but destroy your corpses and burn them all for my dogs. Your dogs are gone. And sometimes, a little of this. We need to have a talk. <laughs> I take my axe and I smash it. No! <laughs> and check out Podquesters, the show where we tackle ghoulish goblins, fiendish foes, and dangerous drakes. Oh, like the singer? No, the dragon creature. Oh. Anyways, Podquesters, Fridays, only on NewRadioMedia.com. If I were a rich man, yabbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidibbidum. And we're back, and I hope you enjoyed, appreciated, were inspired by our last guest. And now it's time to be inspired by our weekly slot with Rabbi Jonas and Goldson. Jonasen, are you there? Great. I'm, I'm, uh, you, now you're putting stuff on LinkedIn. I get to read some of your articles and your, your last video on YouTube you put out. I'm checking out this stuff. It's very good. I'm glad to see it's coming out. Well, I appreciate you uh, helping me spread the word. That is the goal. So as always, the clock is ticking. Go for it. Well, earlier this year, the whole country was in an uproar over a one-second-long audio clip. Some people who heard it were certain they heard the word Laurel. Others heard, were just as certain that they heard the word Yanni. What the debate really proved is that our brains may be wired to perceive in ways we can't control. That means we have to be especially careful not to let our misperceptions govern our actions. In this week's Torah portion, our forefather Abraham has a similar test. God tells him to bring up Isaac as an offering. But what does that really mean? Abraham knows that God doesn't believe in human sacrifice, and God has promised that Isaac will be the father of a great nation. So maybe God means exactly what he said, place Isaac on the altar and take him down again. But Abraham also knows that there's no such thing as an offering that gets placed on the altar without being slaughtered. Accordingly, God must want him to carry through to the end. However, Abraham also knows that if he sacrifices his son, everything he's taught the world about God's justice and mercy will be discredited. All his life's work will be for nothing. There's no one else to ask. How can Abraham make the choice between impossible options? How can he know which choice is the right choice? 
ultimately, Abraham chooses against his own self-interest. He wants to save Isaac, therefore he knows he can't objectively choose to do so. He raises the knife to kill his son, but God stops him before he can complete the act. Abraham was right that God did not want him to sacrifice his son. But on the other hand, he was also right when he prepared to do just that. By questioning his own objectivity, he showed his devotion to God and thereby earned God's everlasting blessing for himself and his children. May we all be blessed with a very good Shabbos. Yonison, thank you as always. Have a great Shabbos. You too, Reb Okay, be well. So, moving along, we are ready for our letter of the week. And I got the nod. We're up to the letter Tzadi. A very interesting shape of a letter. Um, I guess it's, uh, well, you look at the picture, you see what it is. It's called the Tzadi. Interesting, it sounds like Tzadik, which means righteous. It is, its numerical value is 90. And the word I had this week is really a great word. The word is Tzachok. Tzachok means to laugh, which at the beginning of the show we discussed Sarah laughing when she heard that she would give birth to Isaac. Last week's Torah portion, when God tells Abraham that he'll have a son, also Abraham laughs. It's, a, it's not a making fun of laugh. It's a happy laugh. And interesting enough, Isaac's name is Yitzchak. Yitzchak, or we say Isaac, but Yitzchak is from the word Tzachok, which means to laugh. Sarah says when he's born, not laughing, but a, a happy laugh that everyone will be happy for me. And it says uh, much joy came the w- to the world when Isaac was born. That's my letter of the week, a good way to remember. And I actually think I have enough time to get through a fascinating story. So in last week's Torah portion, we talk about how um, the, the, uh, the Treaty of the Pieces, the Brisbane Absarim, where Abraham is promised that his children will inherit the land of Israel. So I want to tell you a story about the land of Israel. The story is with the chief Ashkenazi rabbi. His name was Reb Moshe, Moshe Levi. I think that's his name because that's what I wrote down. But in any case, um, so he met, uh, probably about 15, 16, 17 years ago, he met with the Egyptian president, Hosni Mubarak, and they had a good meeting. And Hosni Mubarak said to him, you know, it would be, really be great if you could meet the, the greatest rabbi, not rabbi, but the highest spiritual leader in Egypt, whose name is Dr. Tantawi, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. He was the chief cleric of Egypt and the president of Cairo's um, Al-Azhar University. So, um, so uh, saw Moshe Levy said, yeah, no problem. Be my pleasure, be my honor. And they set it up, and he went to Egypt, and he met with this cleric, and they talked for about an hour and a half, uh, talked about peace and friendship and love and, and study and knowledge. And uh, at the end of the conversation, this uh, Moshe, Moshe had, to, had to leave because he had promised there was a small Jewish community, and he had told them he would do the afternoon prayers with them. It was important to the community that he show up. So he said, you know, I have to leave, but I, I would like to reciprocate. I would like you to come visit me in Jerusalem. So the cleric says, only if my passport is stamped Palestine. I, I can't let you stamp it Israel. I don't believe in Israel. They stole Jerusalem from us. And, uh, and this, uh, this Rabbi Israel uh, Moshe is trying to convince him, come on, we're talking about peace and friendship. What's the big deal? You can come. And again, this cleric says, no, I can't go because you stole Jerusalem from my people. So this uh, Rabbi Israel Moshe says, you know, I'm not an expert in the Koran, I'm sure you are. Could you please tell me, how many times does the Koran say the word Jerusalem? 
And the cleric is quiet. And he asks him again, he's quiet. He says, let me tell you, in the Bible, between the word Jerusalem or Zion, which also means Jerusalem, it comes up a grand total of, I wrote it down, of 821 times. Jerusalem by itself, I think, is in the 600. Uh, but let me guess. In the Koran, it doesn't come up even once. And the cleric is quiet. And, you know, as we said earlier, sometimes when there's nothing to say, just keeping quiet is the answer. And that was the answer. And that was the end of the conversation. To my knowledge, the uh, cleric never came to visit him. But Rabbi Sir Moshe's point was to this very important um, cleric, he says, you make a big deal about Israel, and you, you, it's not even part of the picture in your religion. But we can't get more into that story. I got to thank everyone, my sponsors, my listeners. I couldn't do without you. My team back this week, Tony, Kelsey, Angel, Alyssa. Thank you all for helping. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I'm Rabbi Tsui on New Radio Media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.